This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Before he was elected president, Barack Obama was being interviewed by Charlie Gibson, and he said... If you don't have enough self-awareness to see the element of megalomania involved in thinking you can be president, then you probably shouldn't be president. I think there's a slight madness to thinking that you should be the leader of the free world. That remark really stuck with me. And it was on my mind after I finished talking recently with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., son of an attorney general, nephew of President John Kennedy. Kennedy has announced that he's running for the Democratic nomination for 2024. I've come here today to announce my candidacy for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. My mission over the next 18 months of this campaign... With no prominent elected Democrat challenging Joe Biden, Kennedy is polling around 8 to 21 percent, which is more than enough to cause at least some alarm for Biden whose popularity ratings are low, and whose age is what it is. Formerly a supporter of President Biden, Kennedy was motivated to run by a belief, this is what he told me, that the White House had directed social media platforms to ban him. For many years now, Kennedy has been roiling with conspiracy theories. Vaccines cause autism. Drugs like Prozac might be causing the increase in school shootings. Toxic chemicals might contribute to children becoming transgender. And there's more. He wrote an entire book about Anthony Fauci accusing Fauci of helping, and I'm quoting here, to orchestrate and execute 2020's historic coup d'etat against Western democracy, unquote. These are ideas that anybody can find on the internet, and let's face it, many people do. But Kennedy's pedigree makes him a particularly influential conduit for disinformation. Robert Kennedy Jr. is approaching 70. He has never held or run for public office. He had a career as a conservationist and as a litigator. And so I asked him, what made him the ideal candidate for what is arguably the most consequential job on the planet? 
Well, I don't know that I'm the ideal candidate to replace him. But I, I, uh, what it seems to me that um, the country's going in a very bad direction, and that uh, nobody else is really stepping up to change it in a way that you know it's pretty clear to me that it needs to be changed. I I think I'm qualified for the job. Because the, to me, the, the, the fulcrum of the problem is this corrupt collusion uh, between government and corporate power. And the place where the rubber meets the road is in the, in, in the public agencies and the regulatory agencies. And I've spent my 40-year career litigating against those agencies, and I understand how they work. I understand how that dynamic occurred, and I understand, I think I'm in better shape probably than anybody else in the country to unravel it. There are, there are a lot of lawyers in the country. There are a lot of people who are concerned about uh, corporate power and its relationship to government. I, I, but you're running for president, the most complicated and powerful office, even on the face of the earth, conceivably. So I, it, it sounds to me like we'd be well served by hearing more specifics. I've spent uh, many, many years suing big polluters in the oil industry, the coal industry, and the chemical industry. But probably about 20% of my cases were against EPA, and in many cases, there were people who were running the uh, key branches of the agency that had more of a loyalty to the industries that they were supposed to regulate and to the American public. And they had become essentially sock puppets of the industries they're supposed to regulate. I spent 20 years uh, doing agricultural law, suing uh large food processors and meat factories like Smithfield Food, uh, Tyson's Food, Purdue, um, Monsanto. And, and in your estimation, that experience as a litigator, as a, as a lawyer, makes you qualified to essentially run all that's under the purview of the President of the United States to be uh, commander in chief of the armed forces, to direct foreign policy, uh, to appoint um, the heads of all the major agencies. You're, you're, you're approaching 70 years old and you've never been in any kind of a major public office. I, how, do you, how do you reconcile that? I've been around government and studying government since I was a little boy. I went to the 1960 convention. I've been to most of the conventions since. I've been, you know, the election that you mentioned with my uncle, uh, Edward Kennedy. I ran the southern states for him in that election. I've been involved in almost every presidential election during the last 60 years. I've written, I began writing about foreign policy when I was 19 years old. My first article was for The Atlantic. And I've written, you know, landmark articles uh, during that time. But but experience in campaigns and being at conventions is not the same as either being involved in the making of of of, um, of policy, either as an executive or as um, a legislator or as a governor. 
Um, so are you saying that, that really that kind of, that kind of experience is not necessary to be president of the United States? The one president that I can think of that hasn't had any experience at that level is Donald Trump. Well, there's nothing in the United States Constitution that says that you have to go to Congress first and then Senate second or be a governor before you're elected to the presidency of the United States. Or even mayor of a small town, but you haven't done any of it. Do you think that that is irrelevant experience? I think my life experience is, uh, is, uh, is absolutely relevant. Mr. Kennedy, you're, you're running as a Democrat for president, and I wonder who in the Democratic Party do you feel is kindred to you? Obviously not Joe Biden, but AOC or Joe Manchin, is, or, or are you something new entirely? How would you I'm define your ideology? I'm something, I'm something old. I'm a Kennedy Democrat. Mm-hmm. I believe in labor unions. I believe in, in a strong, robust middle class. I believe in, uh, in racial justice, in policies that are going to actually help the people, the, uh, the, the lowest people on the totem pole. I don't think Joe Biden would disagree with any of that. Well, and why did he do the lockdowns? Lockdowns were, were robbed $4 trillion from the middle class and the poor in this country and transferred it to the super rich. We created 500 new billionaires, a billionaire a day, every day think, of the lockdown. Do you, th- you, do you think he did lockdowns or politicians did lockdowns in order in order directly to, to enrich billionaires? That was the goal? I, I think that if they cared about the middle class in this country, they wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have shut down businesses without due process, without just compensation. They made mistakes or they were carrying out some kind of perfidious plot? No, I think that they made mistakes, which disqualifies them from doing, from continuing to do that job. Something we should note here. While the pandemic bailout did cost the U.S. about $4 trillion, the figure he cites of nearly 500 people becoming billionaires, that's a global figure, not just Americans. The majority of those billionaires actually were in China. Kennedy's candidacy for the Democratic nomination is being welcomed by figures who aren't exactly friends of the Democratic Party. Donald Trump has praised him. Tucker Carlson and Alex Jones have too. Some of his talking points on the campaign trail would certainly appeal to a MAGA audience. He's said, for example, that cartels in Mexico are running U.S. immigration policy. When I raised the subject of Donald Trump in particular, Kennedy changed the subject as quickly as as possible. Listen, I think what, you know, I am not a fan of Trump's. I I saw his cowardice at the beginning of his administration when he appointed me to run a vaccine safety commission and then took a million dollars from Pfizer and killed the commission. Oh, you know, I'm not a friend of President Trump's. But I think we should can criticize people on policy. Why do you think he admi- that- why do you think Donald Trump admires you? I think because Are you I'm not suspicious of that? You know what? My job is not to be is not to drive people apart. My job I think what you know what you guys have decided that you're gonna do in the press, which is to create this polarization and to feed the anger and to feed the hatred and to feed the and to and to conduct ad hominem attacks and the name calling. And I don't want to do that. We need to end that in this country. 
We need somebody who's going to bridge the gap between Americans. Yes, but you're, 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 you're so polarization is a bad thing. I, I understand that, but you're also, you're a critical. You belong to a class of elite um, journalists who once were the guardians of the press and the protectors of American values and the American middle class, and you now consider those people to be deplorable. Wait, wait, I, I don't consider anybody to be deplorable in this. That's somebody else's vocabulary. And isn't about, it, it, wait, let's, 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 let's talk about the word elite for a second. You, you come from a, a highly privileged background, eclipsing mine by, by some order of magnitude. Isn't it a little rich for you to be calling people elites? Well, I'm, when I use the word elite, I'm talking about the people who are inside the Beltway defending the people, that, the, the press figures who are supposed to be speaking truth to power, mm-hmm. but instead have become propagandists for the government and who are and who view their job as quashing dissent and quashing, you know, political uh, uh, criticism of the of the government that they're supposed to be actually criticizing. Do you really believe this or do you think it plays well? Of course I believe it. Now I I'm 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 finding it 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 curious and and maybe even disturbing that some of your early admirers include Trumpists like Steve Bannon, Michael Flynn, Roger Stone. Do you welcome that? Or do you think maybe, just maybe, someone like that is delighted that a strong Democratic opponent will wound Joe Biden and in the long run help Donald Trump? I'm trying to unite the country, David. I'm not going to do what you do, which is to pick out people and say that they're evil, they should be canceled or whatever. I think the kind of tribalism that you're advocating is poisonous to our country. I think it's toxic. It's created a a situation, a polarization, a division in this country that is more dangerous than at any time since the American Civil War. Isn't there a difference between disagreement on? Isn't there a disagreement? And what you're mm-hmm. trying to get me to do now mm-hmm. is to lash out against other Americans. And what I and I, what I'm saying is. You know, I don't agree with the, with what those people represent in many parts of their lives. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with it, and I don't like it. But if but I'm still going to talk to them. I'm not going to cancel them. Now, my question wasn't whether Steve Bannon should be canceled, whatever that would mean in this context. I asked whether Kennedy welcomes his support in his own presidential race. But Kennedy might be talking less about Bannon here or Alex Jones than about himself. If you ask me what about something that Alex Jones did, I will tell you it's what he did with the Sandy Hook is reprehensible. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to permanently write him off as a human being. People are redeemable. I believe in redemption. You know, I got an opportunity for de- redemption in my own life. And there's plenty of people who had good excuse to write me off forever. Tell but me about that. Tell me. Tell me about I that. Believe in redemption. Tell Tell me about your you, you, your own sense of redemption. I think you're probably referring to um, addi- problems with addiction. 
Yeah, I mean, I was a, I was a heroin addict for 14 years. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm lucky to believe be alive. And like I said, you know, there people have plenty of reason to write me off forever because of the way I conducted my lives during that 14 year period. What's been the effect of, and, and we all know people who, uh, friends, family who have suffered from addiction and it's a, it's a lifelong struggle. Um, what's been the effect on, your life to this day on it. I think I heard you say the, recently that you go to nine meetings a week. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a, it's a, the recovery program is an important part of my life. It's an important part of keeping me mentally and physically and spiritually fit. So, you know, I, I focus on all those things and I, you know, it it's, uh, and that is important to me. I mean, in, in my, in, in many ways, that my addiction was a gift because it gave me um, it gave me a blueprint. The recovery from the addiction gave me a blueprint about how to live the rest of my life. And you know, you talk about you know, you keep wanting to focus on why don't I hate on these this guy more? Why don't I hate on this person more? And my program tells me not to do that. I'm not supposed to be doing that. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running for president as a Democrat. Our conversation continues in a moment. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour with more to come. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. They are one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute has been making one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, what we do here changes lives everywhere. 
Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. I'm speaking today with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Kennedy is best known as an anti-vaccine activist. He sees himself as a singular warrior against collusion between greedy corporations and corrupt government agencies. In Kennedy's case, his obsession with conspiracy, his tendency to see it just about everywhere, might have an explanation rooted in his life story. I don't think it's a great leap of psychoanalysis to suppose that his thinking, his psyche, was likely shaped from early on by unimaginable tragedy as well as enormous privilege. He's certain that the CIA conspired to assassinate his uncle, John F. Kennedy. And he believes that the CIA might have been behind the murder of his father five years later. I don't think anybody who has looked at my uncle's uh, uh, murder seriously believes that the Warren Commission was correct. And, you know, the, the evidence today is, listen, I'm a trial lawyer. I've tried hundreds of cases. I can guarantee you, looking at this case, that I could prove that my uncle's death was caused by the CIA. I have enough evidence right now, without any depositions, to go to prove that my uncle's death was was uh, the result of a conspiracy, and that the CIA was involved not only in the original conspiracy, but in the sixty-year cover-up, and continues to be, to maintain the cover-up. There's still what was, there, what was the, what was the CIA's motivation? And my uncle's death, well, it depends. I mean, they, most of the people who were involved, like David Adley Phillips and Howard Hunt, you know, people who, you know, Howard Hunt gave a confession to it, and they they were angry at my uncle. Their initial anger came when he failed to go into the Bay of Pigs, when he failed to invade and provide air cover for the Bay of Pigs, which they consider a betrayal. They had trained those men. Those men were dying on the beach, and they, at that point... They believe that my uncle was a traitor to the United States. They they then were got, they got uh, when my uncle and my father halted the raids on Cuba by you know after they after the the um, the missile crisis. They agreed as part of their agreement with Khrushchev during the missile crisis to halt the raids from from Miami by Alpha Six uh, Sixty Six and the other groups that were going into Cuba to halt them. And, you know, my uncle sent the Coast Guard down and the CIA and confiscated the boats. The conversation about the assassinations went on for quite some time. And it went into detail about ballistics and second shooters and the like. And of course, there's a huge body of literature disputing the accepted historical account of those events. But Kennedy endorses other conspiracy theories that are scientifically wrong and politically, humanly dangerous. I'll be very honest with you. I don't want to engage you in the deep detail on the question of vaccinations and your belief stated in the past that vaccines are responsible for autism to some degree. I I have to say, I have a quite severely autistic child, and while no one would want to know the cause of autism more than I do, I f- frankly think, with respect, that you've been slinging around a lot of theories over time that don't have any great credibility among science. And I, and I, I wonder among scientists and I, and and do a lot of harm to a lot of people. 
And I want to ask you this question. Do you not have any second thoughts about this? You, you said that, in, that you would, you seem to be altering your rhetoric about this very recently, that you just want to see vaccines tested. You seem to be shifting on this without quite saying so. I've never shifted on it. I've said from the beginning that I got involved with this issue, that's what I wanted. I've always said I'm not anti-vaccine. I want good testing for the vaccines and I want good science. So, you know, I don't necessarily believe all the scientists because I can read science myself. Um, you, you know, you say that scientists don't believe that. Well, you know, the scientists no, at, all, they at don't. one point all believe that the COVID vaccine prevented transmission. And when I said, no, they don't prevent transmission because I read the monkey studies in May of 2020. And I saw that the, the, the amount of, of um, the concentration of the virus and the nasal pharynx of the vaccinated monkey was identical to the unvaccinated monkeys. And I said, these vaccines should be dead in the water. They won't prevent transmission. And I was deplatformed for, for spouting conspiracy theories. And because all the scientists said they're going to prevent transmission. So, you know, I don't necessarily believe all the scientists because I can read science myself. That's what I do for a living. I read science critically. That's how I win cases. And I've read the science on autism, and I can tell you if you want to know, you know, where you, you need. I mean, one thing, David, you got to answer this question. If it didn't come the vaccines, then where is it coming from? Why isn't anybody telling us that? Guns and school shootings in this country are rampant and they're a tragedy and at a level like at no other time. Um, recently, you've suggested that SSRIs and benzos and other drugs, that's your phrase, might, might be responsible for America's school shooting problem. Where are you getting that from? I, 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 um, you, you told the Times recently that assault rifles clearly make the world more dangerous and we should figure out how to limit the impact. But then you said there's something else happening. Why would that something else be, of all the many things that have uh, arrived in modern life, why would they be benzos, SSRIs, Prozac, and other drugs? Well, you know, this is, you know, they, during the, after the Columbine shooting, which was one of the first big shootings, there was a lawsuit in which uh, I think five of the Columbine victims sued on the basis of, of the SSRIs, and those suits were ultimately settled in favor of the plaintiffs. So, you know, this is an issue that people have been looking at for many, many years. And unfortunately, it's really hard to... Um, to understand what the impact is because we don't have good data. And the reason we don't have good data is because of HIPAA. So for reporters who might be interested in following that trail, it's virtually impossible for them to find out if a shooter uh, was taking benzos or was taking SSRIs. I mean, why, you know, the, the reason that... So it's not uh, something you have proof of, it's something that you're you're injecting into the conversation, as it were. Ex excuse me? So it's not something you have evidence of, but rather that it's something that you want to bring up as a possibility. Well, I do think that we should figure out, 
you know, why this is happening besides, because there's been guns all around. I mean, when I was a kid, there were gun clubs at the schools and kids were bringing rifles to schools every day. And nobody ever considered that a problem. People weren't going into classrooms and shooting kids. And there's other nations. I, I guess I, I understand that. But I, I guess what I'm saying is that the presidency of the United States, it's very, very sensitive what, what comes out of a president's mouth about any issue, whether it's race or the economy, yeah. uh, to kind of just inject into the bloodstream, into the conversation of the United States that SSRIs and benzos and other drugs might be responsible for the rash of school shootings in this country, which is so tragic. Isn't that problematic to just say stuff like that without any real evidence? I've said there's a lot of things that should be investigated. We should look at video games. We should look at social media. We should do science on that. The NIH is supposed to be doing that kind of science. It has a $42 billion a year budget. Why don't we have the answer to those questions? They can penetrate HIPAA. They can figure this out and tell us the truth. Why aren't they doing that? Why aren't they doing that? Well, one reason might be that for almost 20 years, NRA allies in Congress have blocked federal funding for research on gun violence. But that's just not Kennedy's way of thinking. That's a conspiracy that is just too out in the open, too political, too public. Robert Kennedy Jr. voted for Joe Biden in 2020. And when I asked him why he decided to turn around and challenge him, he pointed first to the war in Ukraine. Like some on the far left and also on the right, he believes that the West and NATO provoked Russia into the invasion in the first place. When I asked him what alternate sources of media he prefers, he immediately mentioned that he reads a blog by Douglas McGregor, a retired army colonel who's sympathetic to the Russian government view of the invasion of Ukraine. Liz Cheney and others say that McGregor represents the Putin wing of the GOP. President Biden immediately put the U.S. at the center of a NATO policy of helping to arm and protect Ukraine. If you had been president a year ago, February, would you have done the same? Or would you, would you have let Putin act as he had hoped by arresting or killing Zelensky and installing a puppet regime? What would you have done as president if faced with an invasion of Ukraine? I wouldn't be moving. I wouldn't be threatening. I would do what what Putin had asked very reasonably, is that we give a pledge not to bring put NATO into the Ukraine, and and I don't believe there would have been a war. I'm I'm asking a different question. I'm asking if you had been president a year ago, February, setting aside the the long prelude to this conflict, if he had invaded, what would you have done? I don't think if I was president, the invasion would have occurred because I would have made the assurance that Putin was asking for. It was absolutely irresponsible not to make that assurance. Putin, Putin has a legitimate national security interest in keeping the NATO out of Ukraine because he knows that we put Aegis missile systems in Romania and Poland as soon as we, as soon as we wrap them into the Ukraine. And he doesn't want missile systems 400 miles from Moscow any more than we would want missile systems 400 miles from Washington, D.C. And we would invade Canada or Cuba or Mexico if they tried, to, if anybody tried to do that. He has something that was eminently reasonable, that we would pledge not to put the NATO, NATO into the Ukraine. And, you know, for generations, 
our diplomats have warned American leadership and warned the neocons who now run the White House that if we move NATO into the Ukraine, it would force the Russians to have a violent response. Force them to have a violent response. I'm not saying that Putin didn't have any options, but the Russian leadership, not just Putin, but the Russian leadership since 1992 were warning us, do not do that. If you were president president now, you would withdraw aid to Ukraine. You would, you would, you, as, as American president, would support the end of military funding for, for the defense of Ukraine to Zelensky. I, I would end the war. I would negotiate a peace. And, and how, what would that peace look like? Well, you never know that until you negotiate. I understand. But would you allow a peace that had much of eastern Ukraine and Crimea remain in Russian hands? You know, I don't know what I would negotiate. I know that the Russians had um, had come to two different peace agreements, both of which were eminently reasonable. And so but I, what, I don't. What I'm, think, what I'm asking is, what would be what would be a reasonable peace? Well, I, you know what, I, I you know this, the answer to that question is strategic ambiguity. I'd be if I I intend to be president of the United States. I'm not going to tell my adversary what my final negotiating position would be. What about the voter? I'm not going to. I'm going to negotiate a you negotiate a treaty. In other words, in Vietnam, and, when there was a po- political campaign, your 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 father said exactly what he would have done vis-a-vis the United States in Vietnam, and he had as did Eugene McCarthy, and he differed with Hubert Humphrey and Lyndon Johnson. Why is it unreasonable I'm for you to... I'm telling you exactly what I would do, and I'm telling you what I consider fair, mm-hmm. which is I consider the terms of the Minsk Accords fair, and that's what Russia already offered to sign. Now, you know, we have worsened our position in the debate clearly through these, these ill-advised policies of you, know, of, you know, of encouraging war, of refusing to negotiate, of refusing to even talk to our adversaries. My uncle, President Kennedy, again and again told the country, you've got to put your shoes, you've got to put yourself into the shoes of your adversary. And he did that with Khrushchev. He put in a hotline in our home in in um, Massachusetts and in the White House so that he could pick up the phone and call Moscow because he was scared of provoking a nuclear response. Mm-hmm. And today, Russia has more nuclear weapons than we do. We are touring with touring with Armageddon here. These leaders ought to be talking to each other, and they aren't. And that is not the fault. And that is the fault of our administration. Robert Kennedy, I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, David. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running for the presidential nomination as a Democrat. I'm David Remnick, and that's the New Yorker Radio Hour for today. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards, with additional music by Alexis Quadrado and Louis Mitchell. 
This episode was produced by Max Balton, Brita Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputubwele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Harrison Keithline, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. WNYC Studios is supported by This is Uncomfortable, a podcast for Marketplace. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.